You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are going to be talking with you about telemental health informed consent documents. So as you're listening, I just want you to ask yourself about whether or not you actually have a telemental health informed consent document. Do you have a document that you've been using? Do you have a small blurb in your current informed consent document? So I just want you to really quickly make note of what you are currently using in your own practice as we're getting into today's topic. So as an attorney who works with mental health practitioners, as you can imagine, uh, this is an issue that comes up, quest that comes up. So I have created and used a template myself. Often when I'm working with clients, a lot of times I'll take the information they want to give me and I'll put it into mine or I'll take mine and, and you know, do some work with it, send it over to them. They'll input what they want and we'll kind of formalize it that way. On a previous episode where we talked about teletherapy, I mentioned that on occasion, I'll see a client's informed consent and in it, they'll have a paragraph, a paragraph. (laughs) As I mentioned on that episode, you know, if you think back to 2020, for most of 2020, teletherapy was the only way most people were practicing. Okay. And now in 2021, you know, if you even, if you are a practice that is open, and taking clients in your office, most likely you are using teletherapy as well. And you only have a paragraph on this, right? You know, to me, that's inexcusable, right? So I want everyone to think, to guess how long my teletherapy form is. I want everyone to take a minute and think of a number. Ready? Melissa, what did you come up with? I'm going to guess it's three pages. It is six pages. Ooh. Now that's long. Now that's long, and I, I accept that's long, right? But that's how much detail I go into, okay? And while some of it may not be required by law or ethics, think about what an informed consent is, right? It is giving the client information they should know or need to know, right? So being detailed in your informed consent is not a bad thing, right? No client has ever complained because they had too much information. I challenge you on that, right? Complaints happen. Bad reviews happen. Uh, clients get lawyers when they feel that something has happened or something's being done that they weren't informed about, like your fees, right? But if you give them the information and they sign, acknowledge of it, and you can say, look at your informed consent, you've now proved documentation. So mine is very long and it doesn't always end up being six pages once we've, we've you know, worked with it. But my template that I use is often six pages long. Yeah. And as Dan is talking about his long and lengthy telemental health informed consent, it's also worth noting, at least if you're a counselor, right? The ACA says that informed consent needs to be done verbally and in writing, right? You know, sometimes in the counseling field, at least, I feel like we have all of these forms that people have to sign. And it's sometimes a question of whether or not people actually read them. It's like when you go to a car dealership and they give you a hundred forms to sign and you have no idea what you're looking at and you just sign on the line. We really do want clients to read these forms because they're really important and it's going to guide their treatment. It lets them know what they're signing up for. So just remembering that it's our job to not just give papers to clients to read and sign. It's also our duty to verbally review that content with them 
And to remember that informed consent is an ongoing process. It's not just something that happens before intake or at intake. It's an ongoing part of the process. And to your point, Melissa, there is a reason why when you give a client informed consent, it is not in teeny tiny letters. Yep. Right? When you sign a credit card, get a credit card, it's in teeny tiny letters because a lawyer went through and was like, well, no one's going to read it. But that way, if you're trying to challenge me, I can point to the informed consent that was in teeny tiny letters that you can't read, right? To say, oh, no, you got the terms, right? That's not the goal here, right? What we do in mental health. Right. We want clients to read and understand what they are about to do. Okay. So that's to your point, Melissa. That is exactly why it is a normal typeface. And we go through this and we hand it to them, we read through it with them, and you and you then you talk to them about it because you want them to be informed. Absolutely. And so as Dan mentioned in our previous episode, there are a n- number of different entities that govern the practice. Of, of mental health therapy, um, and also that govern how we do telehealth. There are guidelines um, from a number of different entities that we have to pay attention to. And we're not going to go into that today because you heard all about that in a previous episode. But we want to say it again, just to remind you that you, you want to go to those sources of information because that's going to impact the type of information that you do include in your informed consent documentation for telehealth. Yeah, I mean, and just to, just to remind everyone, I mean, it's just, you know, the resources you have, you know, talk to your, your malpractice company, look at the state laws, look at your board ethics, things like that. Um, cons- you know, hire a consultant, speak to a lawyer. Um, these are all sources that can help you kind of figure some of this stuff out. So, Dan, yes, when you are working with therapists and you are looking through their informed consent for telemental health services, what are the things that you want to see in their documentation? So I'm going to go through mine right now. Um, as I said, mine's six pages, right? Now that's like when it starts out as, right? We don't usually keep it six pages because no client wants to sign a six-page document. But what I'll go through is it'll have what, it, you know, usually we'll describe what is teletherapy. What is this thing you're about to do, right? Some sort of blurb that says, hey, this is what teletherapy is. This is how it's different from normal from therapy, right? That could also be, you know, your general disclosures. You know, here's the risks, the limitations of teletherapy, right? Here's the benefits of teletherapy. You know, risks and limitations, potential for breach, disruption of service, you know, client emergencies, the client's remote. If something happens, right? You're they're not there in your office like they normally would be, right? Typically, I'll go through and list out, and sometimes we include this, sometimes we don't. Clients' rights and responsibilities. You know, some people like to have it. Some people are like, eh, it's, you know, but that's really just kind of laying out for the client. Like, what are your, your responsibilities when it comes to attendance and appropriate dress and alcohol or drug use before you, you know, do, do use, um, go, go get into a therapy session? You know, reminding people that this is no different than when you would go to your therapist's office, except that you're sitting on your couch, right? And what's the communication policy? What's the, what's the, what are the other policies? What are the session length? What are the fees? Now, if you're someone who says my fees don't deviate from teletherapy as opposed to regular therapy, that's fine, right? But sometimes, and I've had clients and clients of clients kind of uh, tell me this, that it's useful to have layout for a client who's about to do teletherapy. Hey, as a reminder, our fee per hour is this, right? Why? Because if that teletherapy session gets interrupted, this is another thing you would put in here. Here's what happens if there's a disruption. We're going to make one or two efforts to reach out to you. You know, if you're late, Right, or don't show up for your teletherapy appointment. I'm still going to charge you my late or cancellation fee. Right? Clients need to know that that really should be in there somewhere in your teletherapy consent. Because if you don't, 
When it happens, I guarantee you, your client's going to say to you, you didn't tell me that I was going to charge a hundred bucks because I didn't show up for the appointment that I scheduled two weeks in advance, right? Confidentiality. This is a big one. What are you doing with regards to confidentiality? What's the system? What's the technology that needs to be done? A reminder, some clients, again, like to put this in. Some clients are like, well, that's already in my informed consent. Mandated reporting rules. And then this is the big one. This is the really, really big one that I usually insist clients must have. And I talked about this very briefly on our previous podcast, the client emergency plan. This is the thing where if something goes wrong outside of you know breach of information, but something goes wrong with an actual client in that moment, this is where it's going to come up, and whether it's a medical or psychiatric emergency. Okay, What's the plan? You don't want to be sitting there on a teletherapy session with your client and they have a heart attack and you have no idea what the plan is or what you should be doing. You don't want to have a session with a client where all of a sudden they're like, you know what? I can't take it. You know, and they you know, pull out a gun and are going to kill themselves or they say, that's it. And they leave the room. I'm going to kill myself. What are you doing? What's the plan? In that moment, that's not the time to sit there and try to figure out what to do. So what you can do and what do I do is I put that in writing. Okay, client, let's talk about what our plan is going to be in case something happens. Here it is, sign. Then you have the client sign it. Usually in my case, I actually put an emergency contact down, right? And mine literally says, you additionally agree to provide emergency contact below in the event of a medical or psychological emergency. When the person signs it, they have given you authorization to break confidentiality. Right? They have signed a document saying you are breaking confidentiality. Yes, I acknowledge I will allow you to break confidentiality if there's a legitimate psychiatric or medical emergency. So you can call their spouse or partner in addition to medical services, or if medical services aren't necessarily needed, but if like a parent needs to be told something's happening, you can do it. Right. And then I will also put that information. Here's the number the person can reach that. Finally, if you're dealing with minors, you need to know your state's rules when it comes to consent in minors. Maryland just reduced it to 12. So when I have a client sign these, client's client sign these documents, if they're a minor, yes, they can consent to mental health, but can they waive their legal rights? I'm not, I don't think they necessarily can. So oftentimes I will say to my clients, I think you need, still need to have the parental consent to authorization just to know that their child is doing teletherapy. Now that's a, you know, it depends on a case-by-case basis. And some for some clients, that's, that's more appropriate. For others, it's not. So that's not to say there's necessarily needed in there. But those are the type of things that I put in mind, right? And when you put it all together, it's six pages, but then usually I edit it out and take, you know, things in and out. Yeah. And at the start of the pandemic, I think there were a lot of really good resources that were coming out from the NASW or the APA. They were coming out with and sharing different telemental health informed consents. Um, and which had some variations to them. But I think if you're doing your due diligence and you're looking at your code of ethics and some of the things that they would like to see in your informed consent, and you're looking at some of these other informed consent documents that have come out by the NASW and the APA, putting that information together can give you a really sturdy telemental health form. So kind of going back to some of the content that you include, Dan, some of the things that we also include in addition to that, is information so that clients know how to show up, right? One of the things I think that happens is that maybe we make assumptions that people know how to show up for telemental health, but we have to remember some people have never received counseling services before, so they don't really know what to expect, period. Mm -hmm. Some people have never received telemental health services before, and so they don't really know what to expect 
that way either. So people might not know how to show up, what to do to prepare for a session. Mm -hmm. They might not know what's expected of them, but that's where it's our job to make sure that we are communicating that information clearly. So that way we are, we're informing our clients prior to that first appointment. We're letting them know the expectations and what they can do to prepare. And I think that that also helps alleviate people's anxiety. They know these are the things that I can do to be ready for my appointment. Some of the things that I talk about with clients in our informed consent is about their duty to make sure that they're in a confidential space and a private space. So when, when someone comes to your counseling office, you've already secured a space. You have a private office. You can look around the room and you see that it's just us here. You might have a white noise machine outside of your office. And you know that the room is secure. You know that you can speak freely. When we're providing telemental health services, however, we need to make sure that the client really is in a private space. Is there anyone else in the room? I don't know because I can only see the square behind their head. And so what is our practice to make sure that nobody else is in that room? Do we have our clients scan the room to make sure that it's free of anybody else? Um, Are they using anything to address noise outside their door? Are they using headphones to address noise? Um, Do they have a note on the door telling their family, do not disturb, talking with them about their responsibility and things that they can do to make sure that they're in a secure location? Right. And so that's important in general, but it can also be really important for particular populations. If someone's coming to you because there's any type of interpersonal violence, might be really important to make sure that no one else is in the room. No one else can overhear. If That's you work a really with, good point. Yeah. Making sure that if you work with children, um, is there a parent in the room? Would they normally be in the room if you were providing those services? And thinking about confidentiality from that way. So one of the things that we do is um, ask people to scan the room. Now, I wish that I could tell you that I was the one who came up with that idea, but I wasn't. I think actually person-centered tech might talk about that a little bit, but making sure that no one else is in the room and that clients are doing some things to make sure that noise is being addressed and that the room is secure. Um, And along that note, one of the things that we talk about is using a code word so that if someone does walk in the room, someone can insert that word into our conversation. And I will know that someone else has entered the room. Now, In practice, most of the time, someone just gives you like the big eyeballs to let you know that someone's walked in or they'll say, hey, my kid just walked in the room. Give me a minute or something like that. But that is something that we include in our informed consent, letting them know that, hey, if if you need to let me know that the coast is no longer clear, you can insert this word. Do you know why that's a really good idea? And and, and that might be something that we're going to incorporate in the future is because just some there are probably many examples, but the one that came to mind immediately was if you're counseling a client who's in a domestic violence situation or has been in the past um, or is seeking out because of for therapy because she's dealing with relationship issues or he or she, you know, that could be an issue, right? If they, you know, when everyone all of a sudden was bound at home come 2020 and all of a sudden everyone was doing teletherapy, you know, there's a joke among the lawyer's world that, you know, uh, divorce attorneys became very busy <laughs> once people started opening up and getting out of their houses. But the, the truth is, is that the code word could really be a safety thing. It could really be a, a good tool for a safety issue. Our word is spaghetti because I, love that. I really like food. And, you know, if someone suddenly is really feeling hungry for spaghetti or is thinking about making spaghetti. I know it's going on. 
Now, in most cases, we don't have to use it. Most cases, people just kind of give you some kind of eye motion that lets you know someone else has walked mm-hmm. in the room where they tell you. But there are some circumstances like the ones that you just mentioned where having that code word can be really helpful. And remembering not everyone's home environment is a safe home environment. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that I include in my informed consent is letting people know that there won't be any recording. We also talk about how are we going to manage interruptions? Um, internet, I'm sure by now we have all had more than one, more than one technical interruption while doing telehealth. So it's important to have a plan. What are we going to do if we get disconnected? Are we going to try to reconnect? And if we can't reconnect, am I going to call you on the phone? Who's going to call who? Uh, What are we going to do in the event that there is some type of interruption? And the other thing that we talk about, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, risks and benefits of telehealth. One of the things that we did, especially at the start of the pandemic, was including the risks of opting out of telemental health services. Mm -hmm. Many practices like my own went completely virtual at the start of the pandemic. And so we had some people who, a lot of people who were like, we'll just see you back in two weeks. It's fine. Well, I'll just wait. Right. Mm -hmm. But obviously this pandemic um, has gone on more than two weeks. And it's hard to believe that, you know, we're maybe at a two-year mark. And some people were like, no, I'll just wait. And so we had to say, look, these are the risks of opting out of telehealth. If you decide not to do telehealth, here are the risks. The risk might be that you're not going to get counseling services. You're not going to get counseling services with us. And you might have a hard time getting counseling services somewhere else. And that might mm-hmm. mean that you're not getting the support that you need for your mental health because this is where things are. And so letting people know in in a situation like this, that there are risks of opting out, that it might be really hard to get services that you need. So those are some things that we do. um, And we let people know how they can prepare for sessions, steps they can take to address noise concerns, steps they can take to address internet speed issues or to minimize any of those issues. Um, And we also have an article that we created on our website that we share with clients prior to their first appointment to say, hey, this is how you can prepare. And we talk about some of those things, Dan, that you mentioned about, you know, really making sure that you're making the most of your session. If you were in person for a therapy session, you're probably not going to be on your phone. You're not checking your email. No one's banging on your door needing your attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we let people know some of the things that they can do to really maximize that time. And, And everything you're describing is information. Right. And that's why it's so important. You know, no matter what you put in your informed consent, what Melissa's point here, which is a really great one, is that all the information she's providing, that's the information a client needs to know or should know about how to do this teletherapy thing. And that's what a teletherapy informed consent really is at its at its its core. Yeah. And certainly there have been issues that people have had to address, right? Like you were saying, is someone um smoking? Are they under the influence? Are they drinking at the time of their session? How do we address those things? How do we let people know again, that information, how do we let people know how to show up, letting them know, Hey, let's, you know, put phones away. Let's meet in a place where you can actively engage in the session. And I think sometimes people in the field have been surprised about where people show up to do their sessions or how they are showing up to do sessions. And again, I would go back to that's where it's our duty to say, this is how you can make the most of your time um, via telehealth. And also, this is how you can protect your information. You know, there's a lot of talk about bigger companies who are getting into the telehealth space, whether it's through texting or some other platform, 
But we've been seeing these commercials on TV for a while where someone's doing telehealth and they're chopping vegetables in the kitchen, they're in their pool while they're receiving therapy and talking to their therapist. And so I think the information that people in the community get looks like, well, I can do telehealth anywhere and it's really convenient. And it is convenient, but doing telehealth from anywhere maybe isn't really what's going to help you protect your confidentiality or really actively engage in your session. Yeah. And the thing to remember as well is that a breach of confidential information doesn't necessarily just come from someone hacking your system. Right. Breach of confidential information could be, uh, I'm sitting in my backyard talking about how, you know, as a client, I know how I'm having suicidal ideations and my mom walks by and hears me say it. Right. And she freaks out, let's say, right. Rightfully so. But the point is information is just relayed to a third party that could have impact on me. That's a breach. So yeah. it's not just what happens when you transmit, it's the surroundings the person is in. So to most example, you're in the kitchen shopping food for dinner, right? Not only are they not able to focus on the actual therapy that they're supposed to be working on, but people are coming in and out of the kitchen. If it's around dinner time, if you're in the pool, you know, you just it's not conducive to the therapy. Yeah. And so that's something to think about how, you know, making sure that we're giving people the information they need because the information that they're getting on TV and in commercials might conflict with what we're trying to set up in our telehealth practices. So just making sure that we're doing our due diligence in that way. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing to, to, to know, and you mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to circle back, you know, I do get questions occasionally. Oh, well, I got, you know, a teletherapy form from you know, so-and-so agency or from, you know, my licensing board or from, you know, the American Council Association, you know, is that okay to use? And, and the answer is probably yes, right? You know, the, these established organizations, they probably have had attorneys look this over. It probably is sufficient, right? So I'm not necessarily that worried. What worries me is when a client comes in and says, well, I cobbled this together from three or four different sources and from different peoples and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, let me take a look at it, right? And that concerns me. But generally, if you get your teletherapy form from an established, reputable source, it probably is okay. If you have questions, of course, you can always have an attorney review it. So my clients, that's that's what some of my clients do. Yeah. And, and knowing that while some of those templates can be helpful, you still have to do your due diligence. Yes. For example, if the NASW or the APA is putting out a telemental health informed consent document that might not address HIPAA guidelines. Or, or the platforms that you're using or state guidelines. It might not be addressing the guidelines for the insurance companies that you're paneled with. And so you still have to do your due diligence to make sure that you're covering your bases mm-hmm. um, and that it really is fitting for you and your own background and your own practice. Exactly. You're probably guessing, you know, a teletherapy form really can consist of any number of variety of information, right? And each practice is may look different from each other, and that's totally normal. Really, what Melissa and I are talking about is that there are certain key portions of information that really need to be transmitted. And the rest is, as Melissa said, it may, um, depending on your practice, depending on your style, depending on who you are, practice, what type of therapy you're doing, it may vary. It may depend on that. One of the things that also is important to think in that we put in ours is, you know, making clear to the client that there may be times or there may come a time where upon discussion with your therapist, it's determined that teletherapy is no longer the right option. Right or the end, the end of the client has the option at all times to end teletherapy without ending telethe- you know therapy with the practice that they're that especially now as things are opening up 
that they have the, the ability or right to come in the office for traditional treatment. The other thing to the counter side or the additional point I would say is that there are also going to be clients, you know, particularly if you're in a specific area like trauma or, you know, where you're dealing with someone who has a high risk of, um, you know, harm themselves or others, that teletherapy is not going to be sufficient. And no matter what they sign, it's just not going to be enough. That sometimes having the person come in the office, that in-person therapy is what's better treatment for them. And so there are times where you are going to have to make a clinical judgment and make a determination that, you know what, this is not appropriate. Teletherapy is not going to be appropriate for that person. And that's okay. Yeah. And fortunately, we're at a place now where people have some more options, where there are people who are providing in-person counseling services mm-hmm. and online where that was maybe not the case two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we have a really good and thorough telemental health informed consent document, we're able to help people adequately prepare for their session, uh, which is helpful for us, right? Because it's less yep. things that we have to address, but also knowing that there still are times where we as a clinician will have to address things when we're conducting telehealth sessions, right? If we suspect that someone is not in a confidential space, even though maybe our informed consent document says that they need to be, it's our duty to say, hey, before we go on, I want to make sure that we are in a space where you can speak freely and where no one Mm -hmm. else is in the room. Or, hey, did someone else just walk in the room just now? If if your client reacted in a way that made you believe that, it is our duty to make sure that we're speaking up and that we're addressing that. Yeah, absolutely. And one last point I would just make is is that these things are not set in stone, right? They're always going to be subject to change. And it is totally normal and reasonable and pra- probably good practice that every so often you go back and review your teletherapy form as well as your other forms and review. And you might make changes. You might make updates. You might add stuff or remove stuff. This is a fluid document. It is not the kind of thing that just for 20 years you keep you know, exactly as is. Um, there are times and in, in, in years where you know are going to come where it's time to update it and review it again. Yeah. And knowing that there are some nuances that might vary from practice to practice um, based on people's personal preferences. Some people might say, I don't care if my client's in their bed or in their pajamas. I don't care if their hair's in a messy bun or I I don't care. I'm just glad that they showed up and that they feel comfortable with me. Whereas other people might say, I feel really uncomfortable in that situation. Right. And so knowing that there might be some nuances based on um, your comfort and preferences as a mental health practitioner, that there might be variations like that as well. So I think that about uh, wraps it up for us today. Um, I hope that you found this discussion helpful. Um, if there are any questions, comments, um, if you have your own anecdotes, as I always say, you can always reach out to us on Facebook, you can reach out to us on the web. We'd love to hear from you. But other than that, we hope you found this informative and we will talk to you guys soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.